Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 17 of Because WCW. Thank you so much for downloading us wherever you may be around the world. This is the Twisted Genius Dean Ayers, joined as ever by my esteemed colleague, Mr. Liam Happ. Liam, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good, Dean. I'm good. Got some uh, World Cup withdrawals. Now the tournament's finally over, but I'm, I'm replacing them with a bit of G1 Climax fever. So I went from all-day football binges to all-day wrestling binges. Nice. I, I am. I am. Yeah. I, it's it's a it's a struggle. It's a struggle to get back to a a normal routine after a month of football where you know your entire life has has revolved around it. But uh, but hey. Life goes on. Uh, the Premier League season is mere weeks away, um, but uh, we have uh, we have got we've got ourselves a very special uh, episode of because WCW this week. Liam, tell tell the folks what's what's happened. Yeah, this is a good one because you you know like no one's it, died by the way. Just just in case you're wondering. You know? Yeah, that I, I was just about to reference the fact that we we strayed from our usual format of laughing at a an old WCW pay-per-view when we received the news that Big Van Vader passed away. You know, Vader was a very important part of our WCW fandom. It, it led to us being lifelong WCW fans, for better or worse. So we felt the need to, to pay tribute to him. But we really enjoyed doing that, like just focusing specifically on one very important wrestler. Uh, and we said we'd do more of it. And oh, look what falls into our laps with... Uh, a Hall of Fame induction this year and a very special tour coming up very soon that we'll get into more details later we thought to ourselves sod it why not look at the very interesting situation of one Jeff Jarrett in WCW considering the fact that he was there twice in two very contrasting spells during the most famous period in professional wrestling history why not and what makes it even better is i got the chance to chat to the man himself and we'll have that interview our first ever exclusive with a with wcw alumni coming up very soon but but first we might as well have a little look at what jeff jarrett was as a as a world championship wrestling uh compare well you know the, the crazy thing when you first when you think about it first of all and this is going way back right to the beginning the, the guy debuted in 1986 and you know he was still wrestling up to very recently he's he obviously grew up in the business but the guy has been around wrestling seemingly forever he is a, a, a tale of longevity oh yeah he is a lifer and i get the impression that you know if if, if need be he, he'd slip on the, the trunks tomorrow and have a match definitely yeah and and from yeah, the first time I, I, I set eyes on Jeff Jarrett was one of those old USWA tapes, I think, that used that uh, was sold in the 90s in, in various uh, stores like Virgin and HMV. Uh, and, you know, I'd seen him in magazines, and there's this guy, and he was a classic baby face, smiling with long blonde hair down in Memphis. Um, but obviously, by the, by the time he went to WCW, he was 
he was still had the, the first run, at least had the long blonde hair still, but was a very different character. And that, that was my first exposure to Jeff Jarrett was Double J, country music superstar in the WA. I remember seeing the vignettes about this guy. And it's very, for, for, an, for an eight-year-old kid, it was a very strange thing. Says he, uh, he's using wrestling as a stepping stone to get into country music. Kind of get a kick out of that looking back at it. But um, funnily enough, like my first viewing of one of his wrestling matches wasn't from when he made his subsequent WWF debut after that. Um, but in in the interim, between seeing his uh, introductory videos and before he actually made his, his in-ring debut at WWF, um, I can't remember exactly where it was, but somewhere on the, on the Sky Spectrum, on Sky Television, <laughs> one of the channels would carry some old Memphis stuff. Yeah, no, it wasn't screen sport. I think it was some, it was a really obscure channel because it was like, if it's the one I'm thinking of, and I don't know why this has just popped into my head, but it was on, it was like sandwiched between episodes of Sally, Jesse, Raphael, if you ever remember stuff, that. Stuff like that, yeah. Walker, Texas, I can't, Ranger, yeah. Obscure, yeah. Um, I can't remember what channel it, what, what the channel was, but it was something, was it? Yeah, it's like a it was like some sort of a lifestyle channel or something, you know, and then all of a sudden it had it had USWA wrestling on it. Yeah, they had USWA and they also carried some really naff women's wrestling with like the nasty girls and, and acts like that. I can't remember I don't Is that know glow? What, maybe. <laughs> you you'd know better than I would, but yeah. That was the, the I just remember little things like that. Anyway, the the Jeff Jarrett match it was, it was a really the the match hooked me in because it was something like I think it was called a Texas Tornado Tough Man match where you had four guys versus four guys and any time one team got a four over the other team the winning team got to pick uh, a member of the opposition and got to give him a four on one shoeing for 60 seconds <laughs> and then the guy who had to just face all four opponents at once for a minute had the count of 10 to be at their feet. And any, whenever this happened and they didn't reach their feet with count of 10, then the match would properly be over and, the, and that team would win. Uh, and one of the guys on the Babyface team was Jeff Jarrett. And they did a thing where he got singled out by the hills more than once because he was playing this squeaky clean baby face. And he did this whole thing where he, you know, he survived at the count of nine twice. Mm -hmm. and, and, then, and, and then the good guys got their turn, gave some mouthy hill a good beating and, and he didn't answer the count of ten. And I was thinking, yeah, I like it. And, and suddenly I just put two and two together and it's like, that's the guy who's just being a gobshite on WF TV. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a weird little suppressed memory I had there. But yeah, uh, that was my first exposure to Jarrett. And although a lot of his first stint in WCW for me came a little bit secondhand because I, I started to really... There was a bit of a gap for me between the, the ITV Saturday block that we always speak about and properly getting up-to-date... Uh, editions of Nitro on cable, which for, was more around 97, 98 for me. But um, his WCW debut in 1996, we brought it up on the... the We covered Halloween Havoc 96 with Mike Quackenbush. And there he was in a match with the Giant. We were talking very much about the, the, the problems he was having trying to 
and, and he discusses himself in the interview coming up. But he was associated with a horseman. He's very he, he's a natural heel. He's trying to be a babyface, and it, it weren't smooth sailing, was it, Dean? No, it didn't. It, it didn't quite click. It didn't. It was like it was. It was one of those things where the fans didn't quite know what, what yeah, with with they're coming or going with it, um, and the. The, the match itself with with Giant was your was, was your classic big man little man match, but yeah, the the whole storyline of is he a horseman, isn't he? It was yeah, it didn't quite click with people, but um, yeah, then he went back to went back to WWF, got hot there, came back to WCW with that heat and that character intact, and and on off he went and became world champion. Yeah, and it's 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 a shame in a way because things didn't quite click for him in that first spell. He had the feud with uh, with Mongo McMichael over US title. One of the more memorable things from that first stint was he obviously got that that chemistry with Deborah, which was re- at a time when WCW was starting to get really cool and edgy with the NWO and things like that. It was always quite refreshing to see a few old school Healy things like Jarrett doing the strut and Deborah working as the perfect uh, valet for him. Mm. Little things like we always um, gush over Colonel Robert Parker, who ironically would work with Jarrett in WOE a couple of years later after that. Um, Tennessee Lee. Tennessee yeah. Lee, ah, oh, well, he was perfect for the Double J character. Um, yes. But at the time with the horseman thing to try and project that as a bayface just weren't working but he had to you know he he was starting to look a little bit better being able to be a bit more of his his natural cocky self towards the end but then you know he had this tendency to he really jump back and forth uh at this time but it was when he went back to WCW which was the the irony being that he was really see after a long time trying to connect with the fans in the WWE he just got to the point where he really had with uh, Southern Justice then the guitar and then really with the whole uh, misogyny character and the feud with China was really popular and then yes. suddenly he's smashing the guitar over Buff Bagwell's head you know we found out about the big story about um, the payoff from the, to get his uh to get the money he was owed from Vince McMahon because his contract expired. A very rare oversight from the WWE by the sounds of things. We find out about this all after the fact. And to be honest, just, just as shocking as Lex Luger for those of us who you know, have very limited internet resources at the time, there he is on Nitro. But the thing is, is just as he's starting to look good, WCW at this point's a sinking ship. Yeah, because um, just to put that timeline in perspective... His contract expired on October the 16th, 1999. He had that good housekeeping match with China for the Intercontinental Championship on October the 17th, 1999. And then he showed up in WCW on Nitro, smashing Buff Bagwell on October the 18th, 1999. So literally the day after losing the Intercontinental Championship, which, you know, is is much greater than I, I think than the Luger. You know, it's surpassed probably only by Rick Rude turning up on both shows on the same night because one was pre-recorded and one was live. But um, and that that was you know probably the best match China ever had. And Jarrett was so ironically was so over at that point, even though he was leaving the company and basically following Vince Russo across the WCW. It was it's Russo is the the catalyst for Jarrett getting that that push because he was all you know he was always a 
uh, a favourite of Russo's, really. Yeah, for all the ill-advised aspects of Russo's writing and just how bad things got when there wasn't that filter of, of, of WWE and Vince McMahon behind him. Uh, one strength he always seemed to have was his lobbying for guys who were ready, guys who weren't getting enough exposure. Mm. He was always a big fan of guys like Jeff Jarrett and Booker T. And, yeah, at this time... He was a breath of fresh air, I think, Jarrett, because you know, having to, to be in there to be a hill foil for guys like Dustin Rhodes and Chris Benoit, I really enjoyed that sort of stuff. It, it was it wasn't long before that that they were having you know there was a, there was another New World Order uh, incarnation which was just ill-advised because you know just, it doesn't matter who's part of the faction. I think to to be doing rehashes of the Montreal Screw Job two years after it and and another new world order two years after the whole concept got stale that was a bad thing but you know for for Jarrett this was this was big you know it, it, made, it made him one of, the, one of the top guys one of the top hills and he was in it weren't long after that he was in world title main events I believe his first one was Super Bowl which we you know we covered with Mr. Billy Wood very early I think episode 7 or 8 or something don't quote me go, yeah. go back through our episode archives listen to them all just to make sure I promise yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's worth also actually noting when you talk about you know some of the people Vince Russo got behind when he was in TNA one of the people he got behind was my good friend Doug Williams yeah. Um, it was when Doug became the um, the TV champ and the X Division champ and pinned AJ Styles. All of that was uh, was the Russo era, and Doug's pushing up in TNA basically came to an end when Russo left and uh, change of management. You know, decided to to go in a different direction. So he, he, as much as we pan Vince Russo, he didn't always he didn't always miss. He did hit sometimes. He he appreciated getting fresh faces out there. Uh... He would also the the problem with that is while that's respectable for those guys, it's also it can also do a bit of a disservice to some of them when the content is is not good enough, and that leads me into the next thing is Jeff Jarrett was you know Spring Stampede two thousand they just had this massive reboot and we speak to Jeff about that very soon as well very interesting time because you know, think about it, it's an unpre- for even though it, it didn't really hit the heights people hoped it was it's still an unprecedented thing for a major company to do really and uh, the upshot was Jeff Jarrett six days after the reboot was WCW champion he'd go on to have four title reigns within uh, a month two months and you know if 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 Jeff Jarrett was to ever prove himself as a as a top guy it remains you know we'll never know for sure if he could have done it but those the 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 fast forward of the of the booking at the time ensured that we never would find out for sure, which is a shame. But I always remember things like, because you, you had the Bash at the Beach 2000 incident with the Hogan thing. But oh, the, up, the upshot of that, we were just talking about Vince Russo guys, the upshot was we had a Booker T, Jeff Jarrett main event for the world title. And I still maintain that if WCW hadn't spent 18 months before that, you know, the, the, the road to that main event, if it hadn't spent 18 months just being an absolutely turgid product with so many things going wrong so many viewers being turned away that is the end in the summer of 2000 these are the sort of guys you want in the main event and they had very good yeah. matches together it's just a shame that the, 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 the chase was lost by the time they got there 
yeah, you know, by the time 2000 rolled around, you know, Jarrett was mid thirties and he's pretty much, you know, your, your peak, your prime as a, a professional wrestler as was, was Booker. So yeah, you've got these guys in the prime of their careers, um, headlining the, headlining the company. But as you say, unfortunately, the, the ship had pretty much sailed by that point. Um, but one, I think the thing with heel, I, I never, I never bought babyface Jarrett, but a heel Jarrett, especially that second run in WCW and, and later in TNA, such a good heel. You know, I just have memories of him just smashing guitars left, right, and center over everyone and being such a dick about it. It was brilliant. Yeah, he always was such a natural heel. My fondness of him as a babyface was always, as I said, it was always his in-ring work. I thought he he just he knew how to wrestle as a babyface. He just he he probably do it blindfold. He was always so good at it. And we mentioned that match with the giant at Halloween Havoc ninety six. Perfect opponent for him. Just to be able to do cat and mouse with this giant guy who looks like he's Ooh. gonna kill him. And those, that's why those two were shockingly good in the ring. But the fans, as we mentioned in the Quack and Bush episode, fans were struggling to connect to it because they don't know why they should be. They yeah. like the NWO. They're cool. The horsemen, you know, generally are cool, but they're being portrayed in such a stupid way where they're having bicker, you know, they're bickering over Jarrett's place in the ground. People are like bye bye. So they're having this really good match and all the shenanigans and and Ric Flair being Ric Flair at ringside just really took away from it. And that that is the crux that Jarrett's always seemed to find in that he'd have all the tools in one way and things wouldn't go his way another, and it just all the pieces of the jigsaw never really seemed to come together. But one thing I did appreciate is after the uh, all the the commotion of the Bash at the Beach 2000 incident. Don't worry, we bring this up with Jarrett as well. We, there's no way we could. <laughs> hang, hang, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. We bring this up. No, please. I don't. No, normally, I wouldn't want to do spoilers, but I've got to mention this. You don't just bring it up. Please, please tell our our listening public here how how do you ask Jeff Jeff right you are let, let's just let's just put this here you are interviewing a hall of famer a bona fide wrestling legend a man who's been around the business for decades Jeff Jarrett and what do you ask him about bash at the beach you know what I'm going to hold that back until I make people <laughs> listen to I'm going to make people listen to the audio Okay, we'll come back to this after the interview. Yeah, but I'll say this much. The way I asked him about Bash at the Beach 2000, I made the point of doing it in a way that was basically the way it was on our minds when we watched it happen. I I didn't just want to ask him about it. I I wanted to convey the way everyone who watched that felt. And what the best thing about it was his answer made one thing clear. It wasn't just everyone watching the pay-per-view at home or in the crowd that were scratching their heads thinking what I said. It was Jarrett as well. It was yeah. Bischoff. It was Russo. It was pretty much everyone involved. It was... You, you, you'd, you'd think someone was responsible, but by the sounds of things, it was one of them things where so many people thought they had this great idea. It's almost like seeing a football team put together this, this, this amazing play... But but actually they're all not on the same page, and it just comes off as this convoluted mess, and they're all looking at each other saying, "You were supposed to be here, you were supposed to be there." But in their minds, it was the play of the century, uh, and that's seemed to happen. But for me, yeah. what I liked was after that, and yeah, you know, from that point on, it was well, we heard all the 
the reports WWE was sniffing around. Bischoff himself was trying to put together a consortium. Things were changing. WCW was going to to either disappear or or change completely as we knew it. And I've I've said before, late 2000, early 2001. It's bittersweet. It's a, it's a bit of a tearjerker. In that I really enjoyed WCW for just all all of the crap that that makes us want to do this podcast. Mm. Uh, was gone and what was left was a bunch of guys trying to make it in the business uh, a, a, a lot of veterans like Jarrett and Booker T who could still go and Jarrett in particular always struck me as a guy who really enjoyed himself those last few months and this is another thing we'll, we'll hear from him in a second uh, some of the matches he had I always remember that last feud he had with Dustin Rhodes where he, he was mocking the American Dream Dustin he came out and did the impression it always makes me laugh uh, when I think back of my if, if I think of the last WCW show I don't think of the um, WWE owned raw interspliced finale I think of the actual last Nitro that ended with um a great big donkey being hauled out with with Dusty's ass written on its backside where um, Jarrett, Flair and the Roses were fighting each other trying to get the get their, their rivals head into the donkey's ass. See, that for me is pro wrestling. I know you're laughing, but you know, I have very fond... For, for, so, for, so for me, it was great to watch him for six months wrestle unchained. He... You know, he had some great matches with the Booker T's and all that in that time. It was just a nice time to to watch those W. It was a, it was a nice little swan song for a, for a company that that you know entertained us very much and frustrated us even more than that. But at least the last few yeah. months were resembling a regular wrestling company, and it was a pleasure to speak to Jeff about that as well because by the sounds of things, the the locker the locker room was a harmonious place by the end of it. There, there yes. was a lot of people that at least got to to enjoy what they did for a living in those last few months, which if that's all they're going to get, if WCW's dying and there's nothing you can do about it, at least they got that. Incidentally, um, we, we cover greed. It's episode seven. Super Bowl 2000 is episode eight. But in, in episode seven, we covered greed, the last ever pay-per-view. And, and you know, what you just touched on then, one of the things we mentioned about it is like the the young guys coming through and the great matches they're having and what a shame that this company's about to disappear forever and I might as well sorry I might as well pat myself on the back here as has been touched upon I've I've written a bit of a fan fiction like what would have happened if WCW did get a lifeline uh, so I do a bit of fancy booking just it's you know it's, it doesn't go completely absurd it's 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 tinted a little bit in reality it ties into a few things that ended up happening in real life in TNA for me if if it had carried on there'd have been a a blow off that would have destroyed the Magnificent Seven for good and that was Jarrett's faction with Ric Flair as the CEO Steiner was in there as the world champion Bag yeah Bagwell Rick Steiner a couple of others uh, you had that blow off and it would have led to friction between Flair and Jarrett who are best pals it would have led to Jarrett turning on Flair and you could have had that big moment and say like you know do I think I, I booked it as like Great American Bash 2001 where Jarrett in, where, where Flair in Flair country gets back in the ring to wrestle Jarrett and Flair wins you know a babyface win and then Jarrett gets his heat back by putting together a little faction almost like a an anti-horseman and he calls them the chosen few 
<laughs> you like that? Yeah. He's chosen one, and he's got his yeah. chosen few. So, and that culminates in a war game. So, you know, check yeah. it out check, if you like a little bit. Of that check it out. But, but yeah, like, and 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 some of that. I think if it wasn't for that good end to WCW in two thousand one, with guys like Lance Storm, Jeff Jarrett, Dustin Rose, Booker T, just giving us something enjoyable to watch those last few months. You wouldn't think like that. You just think, well, fuck WCW, good riddance. So I always appreciate the work they put in, and I appreciate Jeff Jarrett for giving us TNA because although it blew hot and cold creatively, there's so much that came out of that company that a monop- a flat-out monopoly would not have given us. Oh yeah, I've always said, I've always said Vince McMahon needs competition. Um, you know, that's why WWF was so hot during the Monday Night Wars. That's why they had great, you know, when when Survivor Series was created because of competition. So it, it's always been that way. But one thing I'd say about going back to Jeff Jarrett is that sometimes you'll watch someone on TV and, and form an opinion one way or the other of them. And it's only when you see them live that you, for me you really can see what they're what they're like so you can just see all the 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 little things the nuances that a tv camera won't necessarily catch you know this is one of the reasons that i will still go to my local wwe house show because it's interesting to watch what's going on in front of you and i remember watching um jarrett at wcw I i think he was would have been there when they had their tv tapings in 2000 or if not it would have been another WCW show but I remember it was when he was you know the slap that was character and yeah they and had the, the they had the show I know you went to the shows in or you went to one of the shows in March that was an abomination with a yeah, false advertising was, yeah. but then I didn't go to that but I did go to and you also went to the London Arena in November where they did Nitro yes um, that would have been November 2000 yes it's crazy to think that in, in such a state, WCW came over here twice. They did TV tapings in Australia a month before they came to London. They did uh, sure. they did a, a, a pay-per-view in Germany available on German carriers called Millennium Final. <laughs> so they did quite a bit of jet-setting on the, on, on the Time Warner nut before they went out of business. There's no mention of Jarrett in here. Yeah, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was. Uh, maybe it was the um, the abomination back in. Um, he wouldn't have been in. He wouldn't have been on worldwide. Surely they wouldn't have reduced him to that, would they? Mm. Well, uh, no. do go on. Tell us your story. That might help. Yeah, but um, I, I remember seeing Jarrett performing live in WCW with when he was the uh, doing the the slap nuts character, and I just remember the the reaction he got just from coming out and you feel you'd feel that that energy in the building and it really i I seem to remember the match wasn't wasn't all that but you know so it didn't it went downhill a bit once the the bell rang but oh yeah just found it here he uh, lost to uh vampiro by uh, dq so that that explains that um but it was just there that response that reaction he got but the, the one thing that sticks out in my mind more than anything is from from tna and um, when they were at Wembley Arena, and that tour, Jarrett in full-on heel mode was uh, doing a gimmick where he was facing uh, local wrestlers. So, like, he faced Lionheart when they're in Glasgow, and um, and he fought my my good pal Johnny Moss in London at Wembley Arena. It was the same night that Doug Williams faced Ric Flair. Actually, it was a hell of a night. Um, 
obviously Jarrett won, but he won after using the smashing guitar over Johnny's head. And it was just there. I mean, Johnny Moss is a fantastic wrestler in his own right, but Jeff Jarrett, you know, being the superstar compared to, to Mossy, he made Mossy look an absolute star that night. He made him look a million dollars. And, and that was where I just, it's like, yep, I, I get it. I get what, what you're all about now it, it clicked in my head because i've never i've never always i've never been a, a massive fan of jeff jarrett before that I will, I will i will admit and all of a sudden that that one moment that one match just turned me and i'm like i get you i get you now and um yeah great heel brilliant heel yeah sometimes wrestlers get you on surface level some you know a stone cold steve austin will hook you whether you watch 50 hours of wrestling a week or, f- or barely 50 minutes a week a stone cold will get you sometimes you do have to to watch a little bit more wrestling to to really see on the surface and appreciate how good some wrestlers are and jeff jack can be one of those guys you remember the 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 havoc 96 podcast where we spoke about uh the the, the bricks and the mortar guys and the the pay-per-view was teeming with so many good more from the arn andersons to the mengs and the barbarians and 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 jeff jarrett's definitely one of those guys who who makes everyone i think look better and you know although we're here primarily talking about wcw and the the interview that's coming up in a minute will 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 he you know he'll chat about his wcw career i'd be amiss uh, if i didn't bring up my own memories of him from TNA, like you said about the Johnny Moss match, is that he he really helped elevate the image of guys such as AJ Styles, Bobby Roode, and it, it was just so great to to watch the the, the torch being passed in that respect. By the yeah. way, it looks like assuming the match was a minute long, it looks like Jeff Jarrett versus Johnny Moss is on YouTube. Ah, oh. very very short clips, but there's more than one clip, so. Yeah, maybe the match is on YouTube. It, may, it might be a a short match if it if, you know established star versus local guy. I don't know, but but yeah, check them out. I, I won't do it while I'm talking, but yeah, it does seem to be on YouTube. Nice, right? Shall we uh, get to the main event? Uh, it's I time. feel like we uh, I feel like we should get Michael Buffer along to do this bit, but I'm afraid you just have to put up with me. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, sit back. This is a fantastic interview. Pulls no punches. This is. Uh, our very own Liam Happ, uh, interviewing WWE Hall of Famer and former champion multiple times around the world, the one and only Jeff Jarrett. Now it's time for a very special segment here on Because WCW, as for the first time, we have a former World Championship Wrestling performer joining us on the show. He's also a recent inductee into the WWE Hall of Fame, and if you still haven't guessed who we're talking about, allow me to spell it out for you. It's J-E-F-F, ha-ha, T. it's the one and only Jeff Jarrett. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Liam, are you finished yet? Uh, it's, it's, it, let's go. It's the world's greatest singer, the world's greatest entertainer, and the world's greatest, greatest wrestler. There we go. Now, Liam, I know you're down to the dumps. I totally understand. Uh, me too. Uh, if we're talking about football, it was a heartbreaking loss. But uh, hey, look, the U.S. got didn't even make it, and so you guys uh, should be happy that you got down to the final four. But man, it was a heart wrenching, uh, gut wrenching loss. But uh, come on, now now we're ready to talk some Double J, some Any Great Tour, and uh, some WCW. So uh, let's roll. 
That's very true. But as I always say, it's the hope that smashes a guitar over your head. Uh, yeah, but the, the, the World Cup <laughs> yeah. is over now, and the, this very special interview has begun. I'm very excited about this. Uh, one of my favourite WCW wrestlers from back in the day, and I want to talk about something very specific first, and that is the fact that during your time in WCW, it was split over a couple of stints. And in fact, if, if my memory serves me correctly, during the Monday Night Wars, the, the, you know, the biggest, most important period in wrestling history, did anyone else actually jump to and fro between WCW and WWE as much as you did? Maybe Terry Taylor? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I've never really thought of it. But, uh, yeah, I just think uh, the timing was a little unique. I, I, I will say that because, uh, uh, you know, Monday Night Raw was uh, on the air long before Nitro was thought of. And, and then uh, as Nitro got launched, uh, I went there in uh, October of uh, 1996 and, uh, was there for uh, a full year and uh, then went back in uh, October of 97. And that was uh, when the, uh, the quote unquote Montreal screw job happened. And so I was there from, uh, you know, off to the races. And uh, it was a, a very unique time to be in the industry, like you said. And uh, my timing just sort of worked out. I'll say that. Yeah, um, when you did first land in WCW, it was, it was an interesting time because you associated with the horsemen. I think you're literally addressed as a as a four horseman associate, trying to trying to get into the group with, with uh, Ric Flair's good graces. Um, as far as the audience was concerned, it was it, it never really hit top gear, did it? There was, there was something about the association that just didn't seem to hit the notes that that probably people wanted it to. Well, how did it feel tr trying to blend in with the horsemen at that time? Well, it was a really like I said, really unique time, and obviously the NWO uh, dominated. And, and, and rightly so, dominated uh, all the programming. Uh, and at that time, it went from a two- to three-hour show, so there was a lot going on. Uh, but Flair and Arn and, 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 and the group, um, it was it – was and, and Mongo, who was, you know, very, very new to the wrestling scene. There was a very interesting dynamic, and there was a natural rivalry between me and Flair. Um, and, you know, at that time, um, you know, WCW was going in so many different directions – uh, just with the corporate environment as opposed to the family-run industry uh, of the McMahon family. So, you know, it, it's the nature of the beast. Uh, but, you know, the, the I'll call it the segments, the storylines, the, the television time that were uh, allowed, uh, great reactions. Um, but it never, uh, I'll say, it never got to a blow-off match or a real refined, defined um uh, like I said, I guess the easiest way to say it is it, it really never culminated. And, and if anything, when you look back on history, uh, obviously the greatest angles and storylines always have some type of culmination. Um, and, and, and the storyline, you know, Flair wanted me in, Arn and the others didn't want me in. Uh, Mongo was a part of that. We started into that. And so it sort of weaved in and out. And then I was um, in and out of the U.S. title picture. Uh, so quite frankly, there was just a lot um, just a lot going on. Uh, but I remember it finally. And, you know, I celebrated my 30th birthday in, in Orlando, Florida, um, and, and Russell Brick Flair on Nitro. So uh, that was uh, that was probably uh, one of the most memorable matches I have uh, during that time frame. 
And that would guarantee a great 30th birthday party afterwards, I'd imagine. Yeah, you can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny, you mentioned the culmination of the story never really happening because I always had a theory about that storyline when I watched it. Um, I'm, I'm, now I've got you, yeah, I have to run it by you. Yeah. We talked about this on a previous episode as well. If you, if you recall the whole thing a year after this happened with Kurt Hennig in The Horseman and then going into war games and turning on The Horseman and joining the NWO, I always thought that that was going to be you first. It always felt like the the whole does he fit into the horseman it was going to lead to you being accepted, the other guys having their doubts, and then suddenly you just completely sell them down the river. Former WWF guy, and you end up joining the NWO. It, it, was that where it looked like it was headed before plans kept changing? You know, for, for me to sit here today in 2018 tell you that I knew exactly where it was headed, uh, Absolutely not, because it didn't exist in 96 uh, or 97. So uh, there was a lot talked about. Um, but, but you know, to say uh, that, that I was going to be the role of Kurt, I, I never heard that discussion. Uh, but there was there were several natural ways for that to progress. Um, and, and, you know, to me, the most obvious always uh, out of that being that, that the Double J character had had such a good hot run. Uh, and, you know, obviously, Paul and Nash and Hogan were, uh, quote unquote, WWF guys invading WCW. There was a real natural tie in uh, being that me and Scott had wrestled each other so much. And me and Kevin had wrestled each other. There was a real natural tie in uh, for to segue out of this four horseman storyline into that NWO storyline. And as you mentioned, you had that extended program with Steve McMichael, with Mongo, with the US title involved. Uh, you, you touched upon his inexperience. He always had a, a really larger-than-life presence as a, as a personality. But, but yeah, between the ropes, so they, they, obviously it was a different story. So just wondering what, what it was like with, with your superior experience to him, trying to, trying to work with him and get the best out of Steve McMichael. I can tell you this. Uh, two things about Steve. He always, and I think it comes from being a professional athlete, very, very coachable, just incredibly uh, game-time mentality. He would get in there, and he, and he would rough it up with you and, and he'd, uh, let it fly, and he's one of the strongest guys that I've ever been in the ring with, and, and, you know, by looking at him, you wouldn't necessarily think that, but, you know, he made it a career uh, uh, out of throwing offensive linemen around uh, in, in American football, so uh, his strength was incredible, uh, but his uh, aptitude and him wanting to dive in and be the very, very professional wrestler, I've always said that about him. Uh, fantastic uh, mindset uh, as far as, you know, he, he wasn't uh, the most polished wrestler, but his mental uh, focus on, on wanting to be the very, very best professional wrestler he could be in a short amount of time, to me, spoke volumes to the kind of guy he was and is. So, not long after that, all of a sudden, you're gone, out of WCW. Fast forward two years later, you're smashing the guitar over Buff Bagwell's head, and you're proclaiming yourself the chosen one. There's a lot of breaking the fourth wall stuff going on with creative control and the powers that be. Uh, that that must have been an interesting challenge for you to pull off. We're in this, obviously, things were so much different in WCW under Vince Russo. How, how much did you relish the challenge of trying to bring this new character, this chosen one character, up to the fore? Well, I can assure you that... that and I've said this multiple times, if we would have ever had the cameras rolling backstage uh, as opposed to just in, in front of the audience, uh, what a show it would have been. Because there was so much going on politically, 
Um, you know, what a dynamic. Obviously, uh, WWF at the time had overtaken them in the ratings with DX and Mick Foley and Rock and Stone Cold, and the list goes on and on. So, you know, there was always a sense of uh, what are we going to do to get things back up and the ratings and, and all that. And then obviously with Russo and Ed Farrar coming in and the, just the natural, uh, quite frankly, a, a division of, of the old guard, new guard. Uh, and I know many a times when I packed my bag and left the house that I knew the only thing that I could control uh, was my in-ring um, abilities and performance. And, and I made sure um, that I knew that I could show up uh, that the fans had no idea what was going on backstage for the, for the most degree, and that I was going to go out and, uh, you know, it's in my blood, not only just have the very best match I possibly could, but, but really sink my teeth into the things I could control. And there were so many things I couldn't control, but the things that I could be a part of, uh, I put my mind to it. You know, there was a stretch in 2000. I don't know how many pay-per-view main events that I was involved with, but there was a lot going on. And, and I'm, when I look back on my career now, it's a period of time that, that I'm, I'm proud of because of such of the adverse situations that we all existed in. It, it, you, you can't point the finger at any one person. It was the culture that was created in a corporate environment. Yeah, okay, and a, a, perhaps a good example of that is one of the next things you were involved with was a reboot of the New World Order in early 2000. Uh, obviously, one, one of the most famous entities in uh, WCW history. We just touched upon the, the maybes of it happening in, in 96, 97. This time around, you, Bret Hart, uh, Scott Steiner, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, uh, great talent there, but, but it just didn't really recapture that magic did it and what didn't seem to help was that there were injuries left right and center to you to you and Bret Hart well and 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 when you just boil it right down to it you know the original four horsemen the original NWO whatever it is the originals are always hard to um you know take it to another level it it, it, quite frankly it it it, you know it it it, you, you already have a measuring stick Throw in uh, your, your injuries that you discussed, and then on top of that, that the corporate environment continued to snowball into a complete disarray. Uh, just really, really difficult uh, for anything to succeed. But I will say this, that, that the segments that we were involved with, the building, obviously you just said the talent, the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle uh, as, as far as the NWO faction were obviously there. I mean, Big Papa Pump was just you know, really coming into his own. I mean, you had five individuals that had about his five distinct personalities. And I can remember basically saying that uh, many times backstage that look, look at this crew, you know, uh, which one of us doesn't fit in this, this group. Cause we're all five really different, but uh, I had a lot of fun with it. And um, you know, that, 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 that's another period of time when, uh, what appeared on camera, what 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 happened backstage, are are two different stories. Uh, a couple of months after that, one of the moments that whenever I speak to more casual wrestling WCW fans, despite the decline in the last few years of WCW, one thing almost everyone remembers crystal clear was the unprecedented moment that the company actually decided to completely reboot in April of 2000, reset all the titles and within I think six days before pay-per-view, so with a week's notice, completely tried to go 
on that different path. Uh, for for you to be one of those guys backstage during all this, it mu it must have been a crazy time. It must have been a really exciting time. Uh, I can only imagine the uncertainty going on uh, as everything just completely reset. I wonder if you could give us some insight into what it was like as uh, Bischoff and Russo attempted to pull this off. Well, it, it was, uh, again, a corporate environment. And there, during that, the, the things I remember during that time is that everybody was, I mean, just really trying to put their best foot forward and row in the same direction that everyone realized um, that, that either you can say the, 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 the ship was taking on water or that, that we knew that we needed to dig ourselves uh, out of a hole and uh, the, the WWE machine continued to, uh, you know, continue to get hotter and hotter and they were publicly traded and, and just all the momentum that was going on uh, with the competition that, that uh, we all knew um, basically top to bottom um, that, that, that it was time to, uh, reset, refocus, re-energize, uh, and, and that's what, you know, everyone in the organization uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera did. Uh, did. Uh, but as we all know, uh, that was short-lived, and, 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 you know, in hindsight, obviously 2020 in this, again, I'll go back to the corporate environment that, that just really, really cultivated uh, extreme, uh, a lot of disarray, uh, in running a wrestling organization, because if you don't have that one individual where the buck stops with, uh, it, it eventually uh, catches up to you, and, and it did. It, it's very obvious it did. Yeah, it definitely seemed like the reset button was was something that had to be pressed, but it also felt like at times that another button had been pressed in that time period, and that was the fast-forward button. Things went to such a rapid pace. Case in point, you finally became the world champion at this point. I think you had four reigns within a month. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that the, the, the titles at the end, they're predetermined, they're props to an extent, but a lot of wrestlers take great pride in being appointed as the champion, as the man to carry this company forward. Did you have any regrets about the nature of your reigns, how quick and back and forth they were do you really feel like you didn't get your chance to to show the world what you can do as a top guy it was i was a product of the environment and that's either pointing fingers at, either at myself or others again i'll go back and i do sort of sound like a broken record <laughs> but the corp, the corporate environment no one can succeed to the levels that that you know no one was given that uh, the true opportunity because yes the flip-flop you know again i'm third generation i knew at the time uh, very, very difficult situation for anyone to get over, heel or babyface, storyline, whether it's the main event or the opening match. When you have such a confusion, and there's the old saying in promotion, you confuse them, you lose them. Uh, and we lost them. And, and collectively as a program, it, it was lost. Uh, just because the, the, it was so hard for the, for the, not just the casual viewer, but the hardcore viewer that watches every minute of every show on a week-to-week -week basis it, it was hard, it, you know, me and Flair, and then Flair had the inner ear problem, and then, you know, there was Sid, and, and then you had uh, Scott Steiner and Goldberg and Nash, and it was, uh, heck yeah, I mean, for me to recall it today, and I lived it, it's still confusing, uh, so you can only imagine what was going on when it was actually taking place. Okay, um, uh, well, my, my, my next question is an interesting one. This is a question I've been looking forward to asking you. I'm going to, you know, pardon my French in the way I ask this, but... Hulk Hogan, Bash at the Beach, 2000. What the fuck was happening there? Well, 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 Liam, where do I start? It's a complete disarray, and I've been asked multiple times in multiple ways on, on, on all of this, and um, out of respect for, for many people, 
Um, just because, again, um, it's easy to point the fingers, but the principals involved were not dealing with the same boss at the same time. And, and when you look at it, obviously Hogan, obviously myself, obviously Russo, um, and, you know, Bischoff and, and, and Eric's positioning and what was going on. And then you, you also have to take in context of the overall organization. Is it going to be sold? Is it not going to be sold? What's headed in that direction? Uh, and so it was really, uh, again, uh, no different than the it was in 96. It just had amplified much more. Uh, it, the, the, a corporate environment just is very conducive to disarray. Uh, in the professional wrestling industry. And uh, none of it made sense at any time on any level, uh, although there was a case to be made uh, from all parties. But uh, history has proven that it did no one any good at any time. And I can assure you that as I sat back and, and, and somebody brought this up to me the other day, when my music hit in the building, uh, I was about, I don't know, 20 or 30 yards, uh, maybe not that far, 15 yards uh, from the go position. But I had to really get my wrap my head around about what was to go down, um, knowing um, it's a lose, lose, lose proposition. Um, and when I say three lose, three loss, that, you know, it, it's from a talent perspective, uh, from a corporate perspective and I'll say talent slash creative perspective and the corporate perspective. And then most importantly, the fan base, it's a lose, lose, lose. Cause I didn't see where is this going for payoff? And, and, uh, you know, my brain has always worked that way. Where are we going to make the money out of this? And, and I didn't see an end to that. Uh, I didn't see the path there and it certainly wasn't uh, explained to me, but uh, it went down. Uh, it's still talked about to this day, 18 years later, uh, you cursed at me by asking the question. No. <laughs> yeah, because, it, it, but again, we're, we're talking about something 18 years later that was a non-match. That in and of itself, uh, and, you know, on, on the Andy Great Tours, I'm sure I'm going to be asked about the ins and outs, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll have a little more time to elaborate. But, man, it, it, it was a crazy, crazy night, and there are some really unique perspectives uh, that what went into not only that night but that day as well. And, and the fallout, obviously. Yeah, and I, for one, am really looking forward to hearing you elaborate on that particular, because as you said, it's definitely going to come up at this at this Ain't He Great Tour. I'm really looking forward to being a part of that. Um, after Bash at the Beach, we were in pretty much the, the the dying embers of the company, last nine months. Now, believe it or not, the, 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 the last few months of WCW are something that are very special in my heart because it felt like once all the once all the big controversies and all the all, all the failures and the and the finger pointing died down, even though the company was on you know number days at this point, the the product actually really got enjoyable. One of the things I remember most about those last few months was Jeff Jarrett smashing guitars over midgets' heads almost every week. Uh, Gary Coleman, Beetlejuice from the Howard Stern Show. You, you, there were times you were just really having some fun out there, doing some really crazy stuff. Yeah, and, and what is your specific question? How? Yeah, I, I should put. I should put a question on that. How did it feel to smash guitars over midgets' heads? Well, <laughs> first let, let, let's be politically correct. The vertically challenged. Sorry, and, and vertically you, challenged. Yeah, and you're talking about um, the, the late, great Gary Coleman uh, and the just pure great 
uh, Beetlejuice. Yes. And uh, I just say both those guys are salty. Uh, they're tough. Uh, there's an old wrestling terminology called a hooker, uh, and not not it's it's basically hooking you hold. You know, I had to defend myself, Liam. Uh, when you go into a, a, a gunfight, you don't want to bring a knife, so I brought the guitar. Exactly. Uh, and but you know, Gary Coleman, uh, he, he he's he, he's been worldwide known to throw a heck of a haymaker punch. So I was merely defending myself uh, on both of those cases, uh, and then several of the vertically challenged people that you may be referring to that took place backstage. But Liam, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough world out there, so I had to be prepared. Yeah, it's, it's completely understandable, Twins. You, you did exactly what you had to do. <laughs> One thing I will say, though, is it, is it did look like, and you were in the ring with them, it looked like Gary and Beetlejuice were both having such a blast doing this stuff, even if it did mean taking a prop over the over the skull. They just looked so well, comfortable and happy out there performing. If you look at old Gary Coleman, if you watch the tape and slow it down closely, you will see that uh, it wasn't his first rodeo. He, he put the almighty toilet paper stuffing into his ball cap and it fell out uh, during the segment. So, uh, you know, Gary Coleman, he, he, he uh, wasn't his first rodeo going into a, a guitar smashing, uh, poor little fella. And then Beetlejuice, and what's odd about this is, is you know, I, I'm a father of five, and I've got kids that are in middle school and high school, and that Beetlejuice smash has made the rounds as a GIF, and, and, and it's, it's online, it's on Instagram. It, it has definitely made the rounds. So, the old, I would, who would have thought uh, many years ago, but that I know one thing, uh, Howard Stern went on his radio show that Tuesday morning, less than 12 hours after that, uh, that assault that took place, uh, that he said it was the greatest thing that he had ever seen on television, was Beetlejuice <laughs> getting hit by a guitar. So we're still talking about Beetlejuice 18 years later. Yeah, and if you troll social media, the the gift file of that moment is still going around. You know, all sorts of wrestling accounts uh, share that all the time. Uh, lastly, with WCW, obviously we're we getting to the very bitter end here now, and it was bittersweet for a lot of us fans because yeah, the writing was on the wall. There were talks of sales here, sales there. Up until that very big moment, right at the end, we weren't sure if it was going to go to WWE. But one thing was definitely happening in the interim was that the product was actually getting really good. People going out there and doing what they do best again i was just wondering if we could get some insight into what it was like to 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 be in the locker room with the other guys you know the, all these new young guys coming through uh, the shane helmses of the world all coming through and 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 just being able to go out there without having to worry about all the politics and and, and just wrestle unchained for those last few months well what you know and there's a couple of things that i do remember you know the the the, the guys the young guys uh, Mark Jindrak, who I'm still friends with to this day, uh, most notably in the pops to my brain. And he went on to a very successful career down in Mexico. But, uh, you know, there were several guys that, you know, they were getting into to the business at such an odd time and they were enjoying it. And I, I knew by talking to them, they didn't really understand um, the, uh, the just 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 really what was going on. Um, and, and, and good for them. They didn't have to agonize through it. But, you know. Uh, that last pay-per-view where it's me and Flair against Dusty and Dustin. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we, we knew, I certainly knew going into it that, uh, that this set of circumstances, it was going to be sold or, or something uh, under that. But, you know, none of us were around under this same environment for much longer. And, and I would have never thought it would have been the last WCW pay-per-view, but it was. Um, 
and so yeah, it it was a unique time, and like you said, guitar shots and the young blood and 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 a, a, just a load of talent, and you know at those times, obviously in the, the very very last days, the the thunder tapings uh, were tough, the the nitro and just all of that, but um, it was uh, I do remember looking back on that uh, as uh, just a really unique time. Um, it, it was eerie at times, knowing that it wasn't going to last, but what was going to be in the future. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, on behalf of quite a few fans, we're so grateful to you in particular for, for at least, be, even though we didn't get WCW after March of 2001, in TNA, it really did feel like we at least got that alternative, which allowed so many talents, such as AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, so many more. I ain't got the time to list them all. But they, they, we always think that they're the sort of stars who would have thrived if WCW had that lifeline. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for allowing us that alternative. And, and hopefully that continues. So, go back again, that question you asked him about Bash at the Beach 2000. Yeah, yeah well, look, uh, at, at the end of the day, that was a, that was a what-the-fuck-happened moment. And... Do you know, I am, I am standing up, <laughs> I am applauding you for having the fucking cojones, the balls to ask Jeff Jarrett that. You have... You have got an exclusive interview with a he's the former WCW world champion former NWA world champion former intercontinental champion and you just straight out unfiltered say to him Jeff what the fuck was going on there amazing I salute you Liam Hab. well he did tell me off for cursing and <laughs> as much as I deserve that I, I really hope he doesn't pay too much attention to our other episodes because I'm a bit of a potty mouth yeah <laughs> but um, if if you think that was no holds barred pull no punches get this he's coming over yeah, very soon for his ain't he great UK tour I'm really looking forward to it and the best part is if you buy a ticket if you are there in the audience you can ask him whatever the fuck you like and yes you can be blunt you can swear you can call him out on some of the some of the controversial decisions that you know happen backstage that he may have been privy to it's, 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 it, as as hooked on wrestling who are who are promoting this tour have said it's it's no it's yeah it's anything goes it's it's like yeah. the street fight of the q a world and let's face it Jar- jarrett's seen his fair share of stuff you know he was he was there throughout the monday night wars how many guys as i said in the interview how many guys have gone back and forth during such a tense time like he has how many guys have seen the the very worst politics of wcw the the whole thing of getting frozen out from WE and then coming back to getting the Hall of Fame. It's its all open season. So get down there, ask a question and listen to what he says to other people's questions. These Q&As never disappoint. I'm really looking forward to this one. So yeah, it's a, it's a busy week for, for Jeff. Just to run down um, where he will be. Um, Saturday, July the 21st, he's at the Resistance Gallery in Bethnal Green, London for a uh, pro wrestling seminar there. Then July 22nd, uh, we'll be in the same building because he is um, doing a seminar before um, the IPW UK Super Show Fight for Your Right. That is at the Casino Rooms in Rochester. I'm hoping you'll turn up on the actual show as well in some capacity while he's there. With a guitar. With a guitar. Yes, as long as he doesn't hit me, that you know. No, these... hit a mid. Sorry, hit a vertically challenged person with a guitar. 
but just not a commentator. You know, these these headsets offer little protection. Um, <laughs> then, um, yeah, four days without good friends at Hooked on Wrestling, the Ain't He Great Tour. So it's Monday, July the 23rd. Um, he's at the Sports Bar and Grill in Canary Wharf. Um, on the 24th, he's at the... Uh, the Hilton Edinburgh Carlton in Edinburgh up in Scotland. Uh, July 25th, he's in Sheffield at the Sheffield Library Theatre. And then he wraps it up uh, by taking in Wales, uh, the capital, Cardiff, at the Beer Keller, um, which is in the city centre. Uh, great venue, that. Um, and that is the uh, the four four nights of the Ain't He Great Tour. So um, that is where you can see Jeff Jarrett. Go to um, Hooked on Wrestling uh, at HO Wrestling or Ringside World for your tickets. But of course, he's just using this tour as a stepping stone to make it into country music. Aren't we all, Liam? Aren't we all? Very true. So, speaking of music, we like to end with a look at a theme tune. And we normally have a guest and we let them pick or we pick ourselves. But you know what? Since it's the Jeff Jarrett special episode, how about we look at his uh, his main themes throughout his two tenures because if you think about it Dean uh, you, you know, if, you, if you discard the time you know he, he came out to Horseman music here he probably came out yep. to the NWO music when he was in that faction there might be a, a, a few little temporary quick fixes and that but he had two main themes that you can call his own two proper themes he had one when he was still you know he looked like Double J but obviously I couldn't use that uh, intellectual property but he still had the yeah. double J look and he was pretending to be a horseman uh, as he just confirmed apparently it wasn't to turn on the horseman although they, they pretty much admitted they, I think everyone involved in it thought that's what's going to happen but WCW booking changes whenever Randy Savage rubs his arm on the board <laughs> nope nope another running joke classic of ours but he, you know he had that theme it was very it was very generic well let's play it Yeah, it is 
it is sort of it's not it's along similar lines to his classic WWF synthesizer music, isn't it? Yeah, just trying to get as close to it as possible. That that tends to happen. But what I like most about this theme is the legacy it left. More specifically, what happened to it after Jeff Jarrett left. Well, yeah. Not only after Jeff Jarrett left OSW, but this happened just before he came back. So, we've discussed the West Texas Rednecks several times on the show. Rightly so, they they got hideously over. No one expected Rappi's crap was brilliant. The thing is, is even though, you know, working a lot of the time in the southern states, obviously, makes something like the West Texas Rednecks very popular, and even though Rappi's crap was an actual hit where radio channels were were asking to play, they wanted to give it some airtime. Those though didn't like that. They didn't want it to be marketable. They didn't want to make money. So um not only did they stop radios from playing it because they were hills, uh, they ended up getting rid of it and replacing it with a different song that was less catchy. Uh, and that ended up being something called Good Old Boys, where basically Jimmy Hart you know, was rushed into a studio, put together a few crappy generic We're Redneck lyrics, and stuck it on top of this track. Southern born, southern bred, when I die I'll be southern. As they were using that, in comes Jeff Jarrett, and this time, as we said earlier, he's the chosen one, he's much cooler, he's much more credible uh, as a top-line hill, and his theme tune's much better as well, and that would be this one. The Cho Cho Chosen One.
with apologies to Kid Rock. Yeah, well, don't apologise to him. I've read Jericho's book and I've read a few other second-hand accounts. He's not the sort of person who deserves many apologies. But yeah, well, <laughs> well let, let's face facts. Um, WCW had a lot of theme songs that ripped off classic tunes, and yet I don't care. I, I liked a lot of them. Uh, if done right, and I think the the holy grail of this, the the, the benchmark is DDP self high five. Yes, you sample it enough, but you add, you know, you you just change it enough that it's not a direct rip off, and you more importantly, you add those little those little bits that make it specific to the character. You know, uh, Paige's theme always had those little, you know, the little the the voice sound bites and things like that to help the self high five things like that. Um, and, and it suits, and and this this ended up suiting Jeff Jarrett. I really like this theme, and what I also yeah. liked is that through a a first hand source from WWE, I'm guessing there was a, a group of guys leaking some very rare theme tunes about six months back, uh, and the, I think it was well, they went under the the collective name of Grapple Tracks, and they released the 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 edition I've just played of this tune. Um, for the first time, rather than people just getting an instrumental of Cowboy by Kid Rock and looping it as close to what he came out to as possible, this is the actual mix, the actual composition of it that Jarrett used. And you can, if you listen carefully, it's just a much better go of a theme and a little bit more independence. And just in general, it's, it's just a really cool theme for a, for a guy in the late 90s to come out to, I thought. Mm. It, it, yeah, definitely. It was, it was over the time, wasn't it? It's just a shame that the whole Grapple Tracks collective cried off and shut everything down when people started ripping them off because, you know, it's, it's social media. Would you expect to fucking happen? <laughs> so, but, but, the, but the bright side is is that we got the proper clear version of Jarrett's Chosen One theme out of it and we also got Elix Skipper's Prime Time. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to play it now, but the minute we do an episode where I get to pick the theme again, <laughs> Prime Time's cheap. getting played. I love that. Well, what did I just say about ripping off a popular track and making it character specific? People who know, when I talk about this, people who know, they know. Prime Time, baby. Sorry. Oh, man. We will leave it there. We are. Uh... We are going to be back very shortly with another episode with some more guests. We are, we are negotiating harder than Brexit right now to uh, get ourselves some uh, some guests and some uh, some new content for yourself for you guys. The difference being, Dean, is that we know what the fuck we're negotiating for. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> There'll be the politics there ladies and gentlemen um thank you ever so much for downloading this episode if this is your first time listening to us then you can listen to the entire back catalog entirely for free by going to because wcw.podbean.com or you can find us on itunes just search for because wcw give us a follow on twitter at because wcw uh i'm at dean Ayers and he is at liam hap um and uh, we'll be back very very shortly so on behalf of the interviewer extraordinaire mr liam hap this is the twisted genius dna saying thanks for listening folks i'll see you ringside